I will now ask Sister Cecilia Ann, President of Aquinas College, to introduce this evening's speaker. Good evening. And as Sister Thomas Moore said, thank you all for being here. It's an honor to have your presence this evening. I do have the privilege of introducing to you our speaker, Father Thomas Petrie. Father Petrie was born in Detroit, Michigan, but he grew up just a couple of hours away from Nashville in Madisonville, Kentucky. Father Petrie entered the Order of Preachers of the Eastern Province in 2004, and he was ordained to the priesthood in 2009. He holds a doctorate in sacred theology from the Catholic University of America, and he has been a professor in moral theology and the dean of the Pontifical Faculty at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. since 2013. And on a personal note, uh, when I was studying Thomistic theology at the PFIC, the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception, I had the privilege of taking a course in moral theology from Father Petrie. So I can personally attest um, just to how well he presents insights with clarity and with grace. Prior to his appointment in Washington, he was a professor of theology at Providence College in Rhode Island. Father Petrie has published articles in Nova Ed Vedra and in the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. He's also a frequent contributor to the Catholic News Agency and to the National Catholic Register. His book, Aquinas and the Theology of the Body, the Thomistic Foundations of John Paul II's Anthropology, was published by COA Press in 2016. In addition to his academic responsibilities, Father Petrie is currently a co-host of The Church Alive on EWTN Radio. He's also an active presence on Twitter at PetrieOP. And this evening, Father Petrie will present a talk very apropos for this week in celebration of the angelic doctor. His lecture is entitled, St. Thomas Aquinas on the Blessed Mother, Her Genius, Her Beauty, Her Freedom, and Her Love. So please help me in welcoming Father Thomas Petrie, OP. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be back here in Nashville. As Sister said, I grew up just a couple hours away. But it's also always a wonderful thing for me personally to visit my Dominican sisters of St. Cecilia. The friars um, have a very close relationship to this congregation, and so it's always wonderful to be able to, if I may say and use the word, come home uh, to the mother house of St. Cecilia. Especially in this oratory, in this chapter, this chapel, it's stunning to me when I look at what God has done for this congregation and this mother house to think that this was the main chapel of the community less than 20 years ago. Um, I have no idea how you all fit in here. <laughs> the answer, of course, is you didn't, <laughs> which is why we have this wonderful, beautiful new chapel for the mother house. On this day especially, the feast of the great Dominican doctor of the church, um, it's wonderful for us to gather um, since St. Thomas Aquinas should be a reason for us to gather and to celebrate the pride and the glory of our order that he represents. His thought is very rich, and even when he doesn't explicitly teach something, and even when he gets something wrong, which is very rare, it's possible for his students and for us to piece together conclusions that he never himself explicitly draws out. I mean, that's three quarters of the fun of being a Thomist, is learning how Thomas thinks 
because he thinks so clearly and draws such precise conclusions, and then wondering what more uh, we can know. In fact, for St. Thomas, that's the nature of the science of theology. Theology begins with the premises that God has revealed in Scripture and tradition, and then using those premises, using reason, to proceed to further conclusions. What else can we say? Because God has revealed this and that. This evening, I've chosen to focus on his thought on the Blessed Virgin Mary, her genius, her beauty, her freedom, and her love. I want to focus on these three qualities, freedom and love, genius, and beauty. Before we get to those, however, it's important to acknowledge and to explain somewhat that St. Thomas did not believe that Mary was immaculately conceived. He did not hold for the immaculate conception. Now, I want to remind you that St. Thomas died in 1274, and it wasn't until 1845 that blessed Pope Pius IX uh, declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. So he was not a heretic in 1274 on this point. Whether the Blessed Mother was immaculately, immaculately conceived was an open question in the 13th century. And Aquinas, it turns out, came down on the wrong side of history. Although, to be fair to the angelic doctor, when he writes on this matter in the Summa Theologiae, he uses very tentative language. He uses phraseology like, it seems not, or it seems unfitting. The language of fittingness for St. Thomas, conveniens in Latin, is always a tenuous language for him. It's a word that he uses actually quite often when he knows that he's postulating a theory the conclusion of which cannot be stated definitively precisely because there's not enough data in Revelation to state it definitively. For example, he would say that it is fitting, convenience, that it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, who assumes a human nature rather than the first or the third persons of the Trinity, the Father or the Holy Spirit. He says this is fitting because the second person is the perfect image of God so that he should be sent to repair the broken image in you and I. He does not say that this is necessarily or absolutely should be the case, that it couldn't have been the Father or the Holy Spirit who became incarnate, but just that it's fitting that it was the Son. One other way to think about this is to think of fittingness or convenience as beautiful. It's a beautiful truth that it is the Son who becomes incarnate as opposed to the Father or the Holy Spirit. So, in the same way, he argues that it, is not, it would not be fitting or beautiful for the Blessed Mother to be immaculately conceived without the stain of original sin. And he argues this for two basic reasons. First, that, that such a conception would necessarily be a movement of grace, and the rational soul is the proper recipient of grace. And therefore, Mary's soul would have to exist in the flesh in order to receive such grace. In other words, Mary would actually have to be conceived first, in his view, in order to receive the grace of such a conception, which he says is... Um, 
obviously a contradiction. Right? The second reason, and perhaps more importantly for St. Thomas, he says that if the Blessed Mother were immaculately conceived, it would be, and this is the word he uses, derogatory to Jesus Christ. Because inasmuch as it would mean that she herself would have no need of his redemption. And Christ would no longer be the only sinless one. Of course, in defining the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, Blessed Pius IX dismissed this line of thought absolutely and persuasively. And he simply declares that Mary was given the grace of the Immaculate Conception in view of the merits that her son Jesus Christ would earn on the cross. So the Immaculate Conception, Blessed Pius IX declares, is itself a result of the redemption of Christ, preveniently. Right? So it's sort of like an in, in, it's a, in anticipation of Christ's redemption. It's important now uh, for, for me just to make a small digression into Aquinas' thought on the state of Adam and Eve before the fall, which he calls original justice. And what he thinks, uh, to, so talk a little bit about that quickly, and then what he thinks original sin is in you and me, and how that differs for the Blessed Mother. St. Thomas writes that original justice, the state in which Adam and Eve existed before the fall, consisted, and this is a direct quote, in man's reason being subject to God, the lower powers to reason, and the body to the soul. So three subjections. Man's reason subject to God, lower powers, your passions, your emotions subject to reason, and the body subject to the soul. And he adds that the first subjection, mind being subject to God, was what causes the other two. When your mind was subject to God, everything else was in line. St. Augustine has, he gets this from St. Augustine. Um, it's only when man is in right relationship with God that he is in right relationship with himself. Now, it's important to note that this threefold submission, this is, uh, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Uh, this, is, this. It's important to note that for St. Thomas, this threefold submission, mind to God, passions to mind, body to soul, is not a natural endowment of the human species. It's not natural. In fact, the Catholic tradition has long held that Adam and Eve were endowed from the moment they were created with grace and other gifts surpassing what was due to human nature itself. The state of original justice is a state of grace. Not the perfect state of grace, but it, is, it was a graced existence. The human species was created in grace. To be in God's grace and to live in God's grace. So for Aquinas, original justice is a grace. He writes this. It is clear that such a subjection of the body to the soul and of the lower powers to reason was not from nature. Otherwise, it would have all remained after sin. Hence, it is clear that also the primitive subjection by virtue of which reason was subject to God was not merely a natural gift, but a supernatural endowment of grace. 
For it is not possible that the effect should be of greater efficiency than the cause. So for St. Thomas, the first man and woman were created in grace, and this grace is the cause of original righteousness and original justice. It's not naturally due to the human species. It was a gift from the moment they were created. The subjection of the lower powers to the higher powers are necessary in St. Thomas's view for human happiness. He explains this in one of his um, questions on evil, which he wrote at the same time he wrote the Summa. In the, in the De Malo, the questions on evil, he provides this key insight. He says this. It's a bit of a long quote. I, don't, this, I think the longest quote I have tonight. So, Every rational creature, without exception, which is you and I, needs a particular divine help, namely the help of sanctifying grace in order to attain perfect happiness. But in addition to this necessary help, human beings needed another supernatural help because of their composite nature, because we are body and soul and we have things like passions. Okay. For human beings, he says, are composed of soul and body and both of an intellectual and a sensory nature, a passionate nature. And if the body and the senses are left to their own nature, as it were, they burden and hinder the intellect from being able to attain the highest reaches of contemplation. Think about every time you try to pray to God and how easily you are distracted. And this help, he says, that kept everything in line was original justice by which the mind of human beings would be so subject to God that their powers and their very bodies would be completely subject to them. Nor would their reason impede them from being able to tend towards God, being directed towards God. Original sin, he says, takes away all of this help. Original sin takes away the help of original justice. So the situation of original justice was entirely and wholly unique to Adam and Eve. Our first parents were uniquely blessed with unmerited grace, which perfected human nature on a natural level and eliminated the deficiencies that are actually natural to us. Deficiencies in one sense, not just of suffering and death, but the fact that we have appetites, sensitive appetites that can pull us and do pull us in various directions. We have cravings that pull us in all sorts of directions. That's the nature of them. That's what they're made to do. That's how God designed them. So that we would go through life moving from one wonderful and good thing to another. The problem with original sin is that we no longer have intuitive and supernatural help to keep all of those cravings and to pursue them rightly and in a holy way at all times. And directing that always to God. St. Thomas says that original justice is in fact a good of our nature. And I want to be very clear on this. It's a defining good of what it means to be human for St. Thomas, even though it was still a gift of grace. He says there are three goods of our human nature, three things that define the human nature. One are the principles of our nature that we can think, that we can choose, we can love, we can pursue truth, that we're bodies and souls, that we have passions, all of those principles in us. That's part of a good of human nature. It's a part of what it means to be human. The second is we are inclined or hardwired to pursue excellence, to pursue virtue. 
You know, we're, we're hardwired to pursue happiness, second good of human nature. And he says a third is the gift of original justice. That's, he says that's defining of the human nature. This means we're not supposed to think of the human species apart from the gift of grace of original justice. The way we live, you and I, because of original sin, is a derivative. It's not the human species as the human species is defined by Thomas and meant to be lived. It's not the human nature as it's supposed to be. That our emotions so easily run rampant and are disobedient to reason as are, as are our cravings that we so often can let them run amok or that we even sometimes need to clamp down on them in a stoic severity is the result of original sin. According to St. Thomas, this is what original sin is. He says original sin is an inordinate disposition arising from, this is the key point, the destruction of the harmony which was essential to original justice. We were integrated and everything in us was working harmoniously. So rather than living in the harmony of the nature perfecting grace that was original justice, in the fallen state, we live disintegrated lives. We are all disintegrated, we're discombobulated, we're a mess. <laughs> So, just as bodily sickness is partly, he says, partly a privation, in the fallen state, um, I lost my line here, insofar as it denotes the destruction of the equilibrium of health. When you're sick, you don't have the harmony and the equilibrium of health. So also, original sin denotes the privation of original, of original justice. And besides this, the inordinate disposition of the parts of the soul. Consequently, he says, original sin is not a pure privation, but it's a corrupt character. It's a corrupt habit that we have. Original sin can't be a pure privation for Aquinas. Since when he uses the term privation, he usually means something that um, is due to the nature, but is not present. So um, the human species, you're supposed to have two eyes, two arms, two legs. If you don't have an arm or a leg for whatever reason, that's a privation. It's due to you to have all of these things. All right. He's, original justice is not due to us, even though he says it's a good of human nature because it's a gift. It's not something we're owed. It was a gratuitous, radical gift from the moment of the creation of Adam and Eve. Okay. Since it was a grace, original justice, that gave harmony to human nature in, original, in that original innocent state, original sin is less a privation, less of a privation, and it's more of a simple continuation of human existence without the nature-perfecting endowments of grace. And that is what eventually leads to disorder, because all of our powers now are just doing their own thing. We can't keep it all in check in line. Thomas O'Brien, a great Thomas of the 20th century, puts it this way. Human nature, with its powers, as derived from Adam, is now just itself, left to itself. This is how it is disordered. We're on our own without the gift of grace, of original justice. It's also important to say that original sin is not, should never be construed or thought, a positive inclination to do evil that was added to our nature as a punishment for what Adam and Eve did. 
If original sin were, in fact, an inclination to evil, then God himself would be implicated in that evil as the one who inflicts such a a positive punishment for sin. Rather, original sin is the rupture of man's relationship with God and therefore the loss of our own integration. We're no longer in harmony with him and with ourselves. This has important consequences for St. Thomas's view of the fallen human nature. This disintegration he calls the wounding of our nature. Precisely because we're made to be in grace, while we don't have it, our nature is wounded. So regarding our corrupt state after original sin, St. Thomas says all the powers of the soul are now left destitute. This is the word he uses, destitute of their proper order, whereby they are directed to virtue. This is what he means when he uses the phrase, the fomes of sin. It's a strange word, the fomes, F-O-M-E-S. It only appears in the Latin Vulgate in Genesis. But one way to think about the fomes, and you, the medievals use this word all the time, is that it's the static that now exists between our passions, our emotional life, and the higher parts of ourselves. It's the concupiscence. This is the fomes of sin. This is why we are so easily distracted when we learn, when we pray. It's why we have problems with the body, why we grow old and get arthritis. I mean, this is all the fomus of sin. It's the static, right? It's the fomus, the static, if you will, that for St. Thomas is itself the direct inclination to sin because of the, of, of the static in between passion and reason. It's the result. The fomus is a direct result of the disintegration. It's why we easily follow our passions. Now, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ has none of this in his humanity. His humanity is perfectly united to his divinity, and so there is no original sin in him. He became a man like us in all things but sin. He does have the perfect human nature. So for St. Thomas, while Christ could certainly feel and did feel pain in the body, when it came to his passions, his passions were always united to his reason. His reason was never not in control of his passions, and both his passions and his reason were perfectly united to his divinity. When you read things in the scripture, for instance, that suggest Christ is angry or he says things that are brusque or seem off-putting, it's easy to read him as somehow being like us. He's not. Everything he says and does is a lesson for us in some way. The church fathers never, never believe that our Lord is ever ignorant, is ever cruel, is ever mean or, or angry, except in the case of a righteous anger, which is not a sin. They always interpret weird statements, you know, like throwing scraps from the table to the dogs in the, pos- in the light of faith, which says that Christ does not sin and knows nothing of sin in his, in his own person. He wasn't being offensive to the Syrophoenician woman. So Christ does not experience the fullness. He doesn't have the static. The last temptation of Christ is, is a heresy. There's nothing in him that is attracted to sin. He could certainly be tempted, St. Thomas thinks, by external factors like Satan in the desert, but those external factors would never be internalized by him. 
Which is why he answers Satan immediately and always. Scripture never says he entertained any of those temptations. You and I would, because of the fomus. They would be external temptations, just like we all have now, and we would internalize them and want to act on them. St. Thomas, of course, believed that the Blessed Mother was conceived with the stain of original sin. But he nonetheless maintains a very high view of the Blessed Mother, as all Dominicans generally do. We are her favorite order, after all. <laughs> it's true. St. Dominic said so. She told St. Dominic. <laughs> Call St. Dominic a liar? <laughs> so St. Thomas believed... He believed, for example, and this is very important, that the Blessed Mother was perfectly sanctified in the womb. Perfectly sanctified. He thinks that sanctification was complete and entire given the angel's declaration to Mary that she is full of grace. It is reasonable to believe, he writes, that Mary, who brought forth the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, received greater privileges of grace than all others. The Blessed Mother has more grace than all the saints combined. She has the fullness of grace. A little later, Aquinas provides an argument in syllogistic terms. He says this, In every genus, the nearer a thing is to the principle, the greater the part which it has in the effect of that principle. Easy translation, fire is the principle of heat. The nearer you are to the fire, the greater participation in the effect of the fire you're going to have. Now Christ, he says, is the principle of grace, authoritatively as to his Godhead, instrumentally as to his humanity. His humanity is the instrument by which we receive divine grace. But, he continues... The Blessed Virgin Mary was the nearest to Christ in his humanity because he received his human nature from her. Therefore, it was due to her to receive the greatest fullness of grace, greater than all others, because she was closest to his humanity. St. Thomas also believes, I just want to put this out there, that St. John the Baptist and the prophet Jeremiah were also sanctified in the womb. He he believes this based on scripture. First, that St. John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb at the visitation. And God's words to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He also notes that the church has historically celebrated the nativity of St. John the Baptist along with the Nativity of Christ and the Nativity of Mary. And the church's liturgical celebrations only celebrate those who are sanctified, martyrs and saints. So the fact that we, even today, celebrate only three nativities, the Nativity of John the Baptist, the Nativity of Mary, and the Nativity of Christ, is the church's liturgical proclamation from centuries, from very early in the church, that we have always believed all three of them were born saints and sanctified. Uh, Lex orandi, lex credendi. The way the church prays is what it believes. 
As a side note, he does mention in passing that in his day, certainly, that while some churches were celebrating the conception of Mary in the 13th century, the Church of Rome was not, but that it tolerated that other churches were, other local churches were. This is why, I mean, I think if the Church of Rome had been celebrating a feast of the conception of Mary in the 13th century, he probably would have given that a lot of, he would have given that a lot of weight. Because the way we pray is often what develops into theological tradition. It doesn't particularly bother St. Thomas that the scriptures do not mention Mary's perfect sanctification in the womb explicitly. Just like it's not a problem for us today that there's no scriptural mention of her immaculate conception. That's because the church had from the earliest centuries celebrated the assumption of the Blessed Mother, body and soul into heaven, for which there also is no explicit scriptural warrant. Aquinas knows this. In fact, he cites St. Augustine, who in St. Augustine's treatise on the Assumption of the Virgin, Aquinas says, argues with reason, since her body was assumed into heaven, and yet scripture does not relate this, so it may also reasonably be argued that she was in fact sanctified in the womb. Now, for St. Thomas, the sanctification in the womb had an effect on the Blessed Mother, she who was full of grace, in a way that neither John the Baptist or Jeremiah experienced in their in utero sanctification. Specifically, St. John the Baptist and Jeremiah were still open to committing personal sin after they were born. But St. Thomas is quite clear that Mary was given a special privilege of grace never to sin, ever. It's the working of grace. It's not that she simply had pure willpower. She did not, for St. Thomas, ever experience, even though he thinks that she was conceived with original sin, he does not think she ever experienced the fullness of sin. He says this. So St. Thomas, who didn't believe or hold for the Immaculate Conception, nonetheless held that the Blessed Mother didn't experience concupiscence because of the measure of grace that she was given in the womb. In her, he says, the fomus um, was, the word he uses, were entirely fettered. They were, it was bound. It was like shackled. They couldn't operate in her. It was fettered by the sanctification she had in the womb. And he believes when the Son of God is conceived in her, it's entirely cleaned and taken away. Because Christ cannot coexist, even for St. Thomas, the word of God, the second person, cannot coexist with the fomus of sin even while he's in his mother's womb. But we now know, and St. Thomas, of course, would accept, that the fomus was not merely fettered and later taken away, but because of the Immaculate Conception, which is dogma, she never had it from the get-go. In fact, one of the reasons that St. Thomas thinks that she had the fullness and that they were only fettered is because if she didn't, under his principles, he'd have to hold that the grace of her sanctification in the womb had the force of the grace of original justice. He would have to hold that. He didn't think, and he didn't think it was appropriate that there'd be a person other than Christ walking around in the state of original justice. And to be clear, even after the suffering death 
and resurrection of Christ, you and I, who are baptized, we still don't have the grace of original justice. Those days are over. <laughs> Sorry. That's why St. Thomas says, in this life you can get over mortal sin, but you can never get over venial sin. Mortal sin, because grace works in the mind. Mortal sin is always a very, you know, you know it's wrong, you still do it. Venial sin is because of the fomus. You're, you're off kilter, you're discombobulated. Can't get over that in this life. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the reason he holds that she has the fullness, but they're fettered. So he doesn't want to say that she experiences it, but he doesn't want to say she doesn't have it because he doesn't want to say she's living in original justice. But now we know the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, everything that Aquinas concludes about how the Blessed Virgin Mary experienced life still holds true. She didn't experience the fullness, but... Lo and behold, it's even more true than he suspected. In fact, she is living in original justice. She does have the grace of original justice from the moment she's born. She is living as Adam and Eve before the fall. Everything is perfectly lined up for her. Mind subject to God, passion subject to the mind, body subject to soul. Everything. And there's more. She's not simply... Adam and Eve before the fall, she's living in the fullness of grace, which means that unlike Adam and Eve, she is given the grace never to actually sin herself, which Eve and Adam obviously were not given. So she's Eve before the fall, but more, infinitely more and better. So often when Catholics think about the Immaculate Conception, they just think, well, she's like Eve before the fall. They forget this second prong here. There's a two-prong grace at work here. The Immaculate Conception freeing her from original sin, giving her original justice, but also this unique privilege of grace that she just does not sin. Personally. Okay. Aquinas is very strong on this. And it's not just him. I mean, this is the church fathers. This is the early church. This is the perennial teaching of the church. Here's what St. Thomas says. The Blessed Virgin was chosen by God to be his mother. Therefore, there can be no doubt that God, by his grace, made her worthy of that office, according to the words spoken to her by the angel, you have found favor with God. For St. Thomas, we don't find favor, not even the Blessed Mother, simply because we're good. We find favor with God because he puts the favor in us. He put divine motherhood in her. But she would not have been worthy, St. Thomas said. She would not have been worthy to be the mother of God if she had ever sinned. We must therefore confess simply that the Blessed Virgin committed no actual sin, neither mortal nor venial. No venial sin. I mean, that's wild. We'll talk more about this in a minute. He cites St. Augustine. As an authority here, Augustine, in his work on nature and grace, says this, In the matter of sin, it is my wish to exclude absolutely all questions concerning hold the Holy Virgin Mary on account of the honor due to Christ. For since she conceived and brought forth him who most certainly was guilty of no sin, we know that an abundance of grace was given her that she might be in every way the conqueror of sin. This was a common theme in the Church Fathers. And although it's not a declared dogma 
like the Immaculate Conception. Blessed Pius IX did not include this in his lines when he defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. An argument can be made that it is dogma that is part of the ordinary and universal magisterium of the church inasmuch as it has simply been something that's been taught and believed and held by Catholics for 2,000 years. The Blessed Mother is sinless in her whole life due to the graces given by God on account of her Son, our Lord. Blessed Pius IX mentions it in Ephabile Deus, Deus, the apostolic bull by which he declared the dogma, but it's just not, he doesn't include it when he says, I declare this as dogma. The Council of Trent, 16th century Council of Trent, actually assumes, simply assumes that this is the case. In its decree on justification, the council declared, this is a quote, if anyone says that a man once justified can sin no more, nor lose grace, and that therefore he that falls and sins was never truly justified to begin with. Or, on the other hand, if anyone says that he is able during his whole life to avoid all sins, even those that are venial, except by a special privilege from God as the church holds in regard to the Blessed Virgin, let him be anathema. Anathema sin. The church only defines dogmas when the truths of those dogmas are called into question, as when the truths of justification and grace were called into question during the Protestant Reformation. So there are a lot of canons and declarations on that, as when the truth of the Immaculate Conception, a disputed point. So councils and popes settle these matters when it becomes serious by declaring dogmas. But the truth that Mary was given a special gift of grace never to sin, mortally or venially, has never seriously been called into question in the church, ever. And this is not because she's some superwoman, it's because of the grace that was given to her. Now, by reason of the force of original justice, a grace Mary has because of her immaculate conception, we have to hold that her loves, all of them, her rational intellectual love, her spiritual loves, her cravings, all of them are ordered properly. Her mind is subject to God, her passions to reason, her body to her soul. Her loves are entirely aligned in the way that God always intended them to be for all of us. But as I say, she's not simply Eve before the fall because she has something that Eve does not have. She has the extra privilege of grace never to sin actually. So, for instance, when it comes to the Annunciation... St. Luke says she was troubled at what was said. St. Thomas says it's significant that she was troubled at what was said and not at the appearance of the angel. Because of her grace, Mary has no sinful fear of the divine. Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they immediately hide from God. This is what the sinner does. The sinner hides from God. The sinner is fearful of the divine. This is not Mary. For St. Thomas, the trouble and even the doubt in Mary has nothing of sinfulness in it. Not even venial sinfulness. When you and I doubt God, it's a venial sin. That's why we go to confession about it. So there was no sinful doubt in the Blessed Mother. But this doubt, St. Thomas says, and here he follows St. Basil the Great, is in fact a doubt of wonder. 
Mary's love was so directed in grace to God that she couldn't have said anything other than her fiat. Let it be done unto me according to your word. Now, does this mean she's not free? Absolutely not. It's a painfully modern and erroneous view of human freedom to assume that freedom means the ability to do this or to do that, to choose between contraries. That's not the Christian view of freedom. That's not the Thomistic view of freedom. So that saying that Mary is full of grace, that she could not sin, that she could not but have given her fiat, suggests to many modern ears that she was therefore not free, that she was simply an automaton. Nothing could be further from the truth. On the contrary, sin is not freedom. It's a perversion of freedom. When we commit evil for St. Thomas, it's, 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 it's a deviation of the use of our will to do what the will actually should be doing, which is to pursue the good. What separates us, us from the animals is not that we can sin, but that we can know God. We can know the good and choose God by grace and love him, therefore, in true freedom. For St. Thomas, the Christian life is not simply a choice you make. It's not that God simply reveals himself, lays out all the facts, and we simply look and say, oh yes, I see, I believe. No, for St. Thomas, even saying yes to God, yes to grace, following God requires grace. I cannot accept grace without the help of grace. God's initiative with regard to us is always primary and first. The very desire for God is something that, while hardwired in, is, is, is not in fact natural to know who God is and what He is and to love Him. It's not natural to our human faculties, but it's a gift that's given to us by grace. Originally the grace of original justice and now sanctifying grace. God works, His grace works in a person to sanctify and make her will his will, to unite them perfectly. His grace moves in the will so that the person is still freely choosing. He doesn't oppress or alienate the will. He makes the will to be what it is, to do what he created it to do. His grace moves in the will so that the person is still freely choosing, but actually choosing the highest good for which it was made. So it's not simply that the Blessed Mother couldn't have said no at the Annunciation. It's that she wouldn't have said no at the Annunciation. Not in the slightest. Because she has not one ounce of sin, her will is not the least bit diluted or diverted from the purpose for which it is made. God. The pursuit of the highest good. Moreover, she is given the fullness of grace to actually choose God always and everywhere and not simply to pursue him. She is, for lack of a better word, the truly liberated woman. Where there is grace, there is found freedom. She is truly free. Moreover, it's important to note that the incarnation was not a surprise to the Blessed Mother. Truly. Truly. Because sin was not part of her life, 
There was simply no static between her passions and her mind. There were no bodily issues with her highest prayers or her highest thoughts. She was not subject to random distractions in her thoughts and prayers. The human person is not meant to be with the help of original justice. She would not have been, for instance, physically overwhelmed with exhaustion when she prayed or when she read or when she studied. If she was tired, because she has everything properly ordered, all of her priorities straight, she would have gone to bed. <laughs> without feeling any sinful shame about it. She's a virtuous woman. So, she could study and learn with all, all, without all the sinful effects you and I have to deal with, especially when we're reading difficult modern theology. Distractions, sinful thoughts, daydreaming, all of that is an effect of the fullness of sin. She set, when she would set her mind to study, to know God more and more in Scripture, she would be single-minded in that without any distraction. So at one point, discussing the Annunciation, one of Aquinas' objectors argues that the Blessed Mother doesn't need the Annunciation because she already believed that the Incarnation would happen. St. Thomas, in his reply, agrees in one way. He says, and this is a direct quote, the Blessed Virgin did indeed believe explicitly in the future incarnation. She knew it was going to happen. I don't know how many of the Church Fathers held this view. I'm certain St. Ambrose and St. Augustine did, something I'm still working on. But it's not unique to St. Thomas Aquinas. But it makes perfect sense that the Virgin Mary would have figured out God's intention to become incarnate simply by reading the prophecies and wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures, of the Old Testament. Because throughout the Gospels, the evangelists are always pointing out ways that Christ fulfills the prophecies. He did this to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said. He did that to fulfill what Jeremiah said. The church very quickly came to understand that the prophecies were all about Christ. But that was after the fact, because of our sinful and dull minds. The Blessed Mother wasn't hindered by any of that. So when she read the prophecies, or heard them proclaimed at synagogue, she understood them rightly. She knew the incarnation would happen. What she did not know and what she could not and would not presume, because there is also no ounce of pride of life in her, was that it would be her. That she herself would be the woman. We cannot possibly, you and I fathom, what it would mean and how she sort of understood herself. It's impossible for me to think that she was walking through her days knowing and thinking of to herself, I'm really, I'm living in original, I'm... You know, I don't live the way other people live. That would be a sinful thought. She doesn't think those ways. That would be a venial sin to set herself apart from others in pride. She has none of this. Right? St. Thomas says this. Being humble, she did not think such high things of herself. And so the Annunciation was for her, he says, an instruction on the matter that it was going to be her, but not on the Incarnation. She knew that would happen. That she would, it was an instruction that she would be the Mother of God. A little later in the Summa, he says of the Blessed Mother at the Annunciation, um, 
This is a direct quote. To a humble mind, nothing is more astonishing than to hear about its own excellence. Mary is a humble genius. For instance, I think it's Origen who says that the moment she is greeted as full of grace, Mary would have known, because of her devotion to God and Scripture, she would have known the Scriptures so well that she would have known that nobody else in history, in the history of the world, had ever been greeted in such a way. She would have known that in that moment. She's a genius. She's a genius because of the grace given to her, because she has the fullness of the seven gifts of the Spirit, because her body and soul are perfectly united and aligned, being directed to God. That she is without sin and that she does not live with concupiscence and the fullness of sin means that in the end, for St. Thomas, she must also be, certainly now because she has the beatific vision and the glorified body, but even then, she must also have been radiantly beautiful. Aquinas understands that the human person is a composite of body and soul. A composite. A body is not a thing and the soul another thing. There are two principles of one person. The soul is not only the principle of life, which is what makes the body alive, but it's also the form of the body, which is to say it's what makes the body be what it is. This is not the modern Cartesian dualism you and I live with in the modern world. For St. Thomas... The soul is not the ghost in the machine operating the body as captain of the ship. The soul for St. Thomas is what makes the body be what it is, to make it my body. And your, and your soul makes your soul your body. The soul itself, he says, is a spiritual substance that is meant to be with a body, with your particular body. We don't turn into angels when we die. In fact, for Aquinas, it's not true to say that the spiritual exists in the material. It's the other way around. So the soul doesn't exist in the body for St. Thomas. The body exists in the soul. Because the soul is what gives the body its shape and its purpose. The soul makes the body to be what it is. Aquinas is so strong on this that he thinks the body and soul mutually implicate each other. The soul depends on the body, on the senses for knowledge, but also for locomotion and for expression. And the soul affects the bodies. Think of all the nonverbals that you catch from other people that are, uh, for lack of a better word, written on the body, even when we're not speaking. In his treatise on the angels, he insists that angelic creatures, not just angels but demons, cannot read your heart. Only God can read your heart. But... Um, this is some bad news, but angels can read your body. And everything that happens in your soul is manifest and written on your body. From your cheeks flushing when you're upset, to even the slightest quiver in your eyelid. The angels are just infinitely better than you and I at reading nonverbals. <laughs> Aquinas is so strong on the natural unity of the body and soul... That he believes that after we die, and when we are, God willing, in the beatific vision without our bodies, before the resurrection of the dead, we're not really a human person. And our souls are still, it would not be right to say longing for the body, because there's no longing in heaven, but it retains its order to the body. 
Um, we're made to learn while we're in the body. Now he says, of course, this is made up for by the fact that you're in the beatific vision. But the general resurrection of the dead is a radically important Christian truth because it means the body is not incidental. It's very important to us. In fact, for St. Thomas, the body, after the resurrection of the dead, must be glorified in its union with the soul in the beatific vision because the grace of the beatific vision in the soul would necessarily, necessarily radiate from the soul into the body and make the body fit or proportioned, if you will, to existing in the beatific vision. Your body has to be made ready to be in the presence of God. The Blessed Mother did not have the beatific vision in life. She does now, of course, with her body, since she has assumed body and soul in heaven, but not when she walked this earth. We believe that Christ, his humanity, has the beatific vision at all times. Even on the cross, he sees the face of God, but not Mary. Nonetheless, she has the fullness of grace. And this necessarily radiates to her body, which means uh, she had to be physically beautiful, stunningly gorgeous. The apparitions confirm this, even though now she appears in the stunning glory of her glorified body. But when she walked this life, Aquinas holds that she was absolutely beautiful. His principles and what he believes about the human person and what he believes about grace in her force him to say this. And of course, I think he's right. Which, of course, raises an interesting question about all the sinners in her life. About the men in her life. St. Thomas has a wonderful thought about this. And as far as I can tell, he only says this in one place in his very first work, his commentary on St. Peter Lombard's sentences. Here's what he says. In the Blessed Virgin, the inclination of the fomus was wholly taken away, both as to venial sin and as to mortal sin. And what is greater, as it is said, sanctifying grace not only repressed illicit desires in her, but also had efficacy in others, such that although she was physically beautiful, no man was ever able to covet her. So already in life, the Blessed Mother is, the cause of, is a cause of grace and joy in others. I often like to imagine what it must have been like when she went out in public, uh, say, to the market, and men noticed her, noticed her beauty, but could not, for the life of themselves, for, for, you know, in spite of themselves, could not bring themselves to lust after her or to desire her in any way that would be illicit or impure. What was going on in their heads? Here comes that beautiful girl again. I'm sure when the Virgin Mary walked into a room or into a market, everybody noticed um, her beauty and how wonderful she was. But the graces in her overflowed to them so that there was never a hint in the people around her of jealousy for her or of lust or of domination. Mary's beauty was an avenue to grace for those around her. Note, too, that although he was a just man, St. Joseph himself would have certainly benefited from the effects of Mary's graces. In a retreat that the venerable Fulton Sheen gave to some priest after the council, he says that the Blessed Mother is the woman that every girl wants to be and the wife that every man wants to marry. 
impossibly high bar. (laughs) But I'd like to conclude with this thought. The Blessed Virgin Mary is not simply the fairest of our race and the cause of our hope, as she is all of that. She is actually the person we're called to be, and we pray one day will be, in the beatific vision, because of grace. Nothing that she does is by sheer willpower or discipline or according to her own merit. Everything she is, she is because of the grace of God at work in her. So come to find out that this is exactly what God wants for the human race. To live our human existence fully free in the fullness of his grace. Now, of course, there are all sorts of questions we can still ask. Why he didn't do for Adam and Eve what he did for Mary. Why he doesn't do that for you and for me. What he does for her, what he did for her. Why he didn't make a world where we would not sin but still be free in his grace. All of these he could have done. All those are questions aside, but... And they're good questions, and St. Thomas and St. Augustine have a grope for the answers to those kinds of questions. But all that aside, the fact remains is this. When you think about the human race, you should not first think of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. They are not the paradigm. Eve was a horrible helpmate. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the paradigm. The Blessed Virgin Mary is what God always intended the human race to be at its best. Free in grace, fully alive in the love of God, genius in thought but humble of mind, and absolutely beautiful in pure and grace-filled ways. Thank you.